terminal cancer, and our prayers continue to be with you. And Jerry, you almost read the right passage. It was First John. But the interesting thing is, it actually fits in, which is surprising. So thank you for that. My challenge this morning is trying to keep these youth girls awake. They had a sleepover and didn't get to sleep till 3.30. So uh, <laughs> Stacy and Kelly and Joanne, I'm going to be watching you. And uh, yeah, as uh, Rita mentioned, we had a wonderful time of fellowship yesterday at the Jake Strecker Memorial Service. A number of you are here from that and have come from great distances. And uh, it just reminds us of God's goodness over the years, over the decades. Uh, in the, especially in the 80s when I was here, the, the Strecker family was a very dynamic family that uh, was totally committed to God, and Jake was involved in uh, church leadership, and all of their kids were so involved in the youth group, which was really the best part of the church, even though there were many good things in the church, but that youth group was unbelievable. Never seen anything like it. And it was uh, a lot because of kids like them who committed themselves totally to that. We are starting a, a new series today, but we're continuing to study the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And today our passage is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 29. So today and next Sunday we'll be looking at the two most famous of Jesus' parables. It says in Luke 10 that on one occasion, verse 25, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? The question is, who do you love? Father, thank you that... Let's pray. Father, thank you that these parables really penetrate into the very depths of our being. And they expose some of the shallowness that we often live with and are often content with. And this one especially has been stretching for me. It's been convicting, and it's also affected the way I do things. And I pray that that would continue, and I pray all of us would enter into that so that we can be more the, the people that you have made us by giving us new life in Christ. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this expert in the law wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? Well, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. 
They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, we don't know anything about this unfortunate victim. There's no data. This was just a John Doe. We don't know if he was a righteous man. We don't know if he had a family. Was he rich? Maybe he was probably wearing an Armani robe because robbers usually target the rich. Maybe he was a member of the Liberal Party. We don't know. And that's important because he could be anyone. Any one of us, he could be any one of them. It doesn't really matter who he was. What matters is what happened to him. While traveling down the road from the hill country of Mount Zion into the lowlands of the Jordan Valley, he got mugged. He was severely assaulted and left in critical condition. And so here we have a nameless victim lying there like roadkill. And probably there were vultures circling overhead. But they hesitated because there was traffic on that highway. Others were traveling the same road in either direction. For example, verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road. The first eyewitness on the scene is a priest who had probably just completed his duties at the temple. So good news, the first responder is a man of God, someone who, who, for whom helping people was his profession. That's what his life was supposed to be all about. But it says that when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. The priest didn't even stop. He just kept going. We don't know why. He probably had his reasons, or at least a very good excuse. Maybe the victim was not part of his particular denomination. Not my responsibility, not my problem. And he wasn't moving. So if he was dead, then touching him would violate his vows to the priesthood. It would make him ritually unclean. I mean, what would people think? It would go on his permanent record. He couldn't take that risk. The priest must have had a reason. Maybe this was right after one of the annual feasts. If it was the Passover, it would have been a very busy week for him. I mean, it would have been all these people and the animals and the noise and the smells and the sacrifices. And did I mention the noise? He just spent a whole week being spiritual, hosting pilgrims who came to Jerusalem from distant lands, what a bunch of hopeless sinners. I've had enough of them. It just gets worse every year. He was drained by all the drama. Have you ever tried being spiritual? I mean, we can manage to do it for a couple of hours on Sunday morning. But when it goes on for days, it's exhausting. But now it was finally over. He had fulfilled his weekly quota of goodness and mercy. He was now off duty. His sanctification was offline. He didn't have one more good deed left in him. It's a classic case of compassion fatigue. Have you ever been there? I have many times. And it definitely affects your perspective, the way you look at things. 
Besides, I can't stand the sight of blood. It makes me squeamish. And the worst thing was, there's no audience. I mean, what's the point of doing something compassionate if there's no one around to see you do it? It says in Matthew 6 that the religious leaders did their acts of righteousness to be seen by men. They gave, when they gave to the needy, they announced it with trumpets in the synagogues and on the street corners to be honored by men. Why do something like this when there's no one around to see it? So when the priest saw this unfortunate stranger, he just passed by in cold-blooded indifference. Maybe next time. Verse 32 says, So too a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. And I'm sure he also had good reasons. What if this was an ambush? If he stopped to examine this decoy, he'd be an easy target for the gang waiting nearby. Besides, it was probably his own fault. He drank too much wine at the festival. That's why he'd fallen off his donkey and couldn't get up. I'm not going to become an enabler for some wretched sinner who needs to experience the consequences of his transgressions. The more I think of it, the more this has divine retribution written all over it. No self-respecting Levite would want to interfere with the execution of divine judgment. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. They say that an excuse is an abomination to the Lord and an ever-present help in time of trouble. So what's your excuse? As a computer geek explained to his wife, I'm sorry I forgot your birthday. I ran out of memory. <laughs> it happens, right guys? You can't remember everything. Well, we don't know why the priest and Levi just passed by. It's like the question in the old folk song. How many times can a man turn his head pretending he just doesn't see? You see, helping people makes life very complicated. And I think if there was a modern version of this parable, there'd be another guy on that road. Maybe a seminary student who was on his iPhone and his eyes were glued to the screen and he didn't even notice the man and also passed by. But verse 33 says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to the place where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Well, finally, there's someone with a pulse. Someone who cares. But why does it have to be a Samaritan? Jews and Samaritans despised each other. I mean, they didn't agree on anything. I mean, there was more animosity between them than between Stampeder and Eskimo fans. Now, be honest with me. If there was a guy struggling to change a flat tire, and he was wearing an Oilers jersey, would you stop? We have one person, <laughs> Jeff. Yeah. Jews and Samaritans disagreed about everything. 
And they certainly wouldn't help each other. I mean, Samaritans were descended from the mixed races that were imported by the Assyrians after 722 BC. So there's like seven centuries of hatred and animosity between them. Because they were Jews who had intermarried with Gentiles. They were heretics who worshipped on Mount Gerizim, not Mount Zion. And they actually cooperated with the Roman occupation. They had been feuding for centuries. So Samaritans were unclean sinners who offered polluted worship. And morally they were so messed up. The first Samaritan Jesus met when he traveled through Samaria was a woman who had been divorced five times and was now living with a man she wasn't married to. Can anything good come from Samaria? But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Well, of course, feelings are one thing. But sympathy doesn't always translate into action. Wow, I feel for you, man. God bless you and good luck. No, it says when he saw him, he took pity on him and he went to him. Intending to do something. But that's when he saw the problem. No, this is a Jew. Or this is a guy who almost ran me off the road back there. Or this was the swindler who defrauded me in that business deal years ago. Or this was the racist who cursed me yesterday and said, you don't belong here. Sometimes the face of the victim reveals an adversary. I'm not going to help her. This wasn't his neighbor. They didn't have the same postal code. They weren't even part of the same culture. But the Samaritan didn't see this man as his bitter enemy. He saw him as someone in need, as someone whose wounds needed to be bandaged. It says in verse 34 that he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The interesting thing here is that all three of these men reacted, noticed the victim, the same victim, but they reacted very differently because it was all about their perception. And that's what this series is about. It's about our perspective. It's about the way we look at things and what we see and what we notice. Because who you are will determine what you see. Do you see what I see? The priest and the Levite saw the helpless victim, but their vision was refracted by their excuses. Sometimes we depersonalize individuals so we don't have to deal with them. We stereotype them. They're part of a group or part of a nationality or part of a subculture. They're different than us. 
You know, they're country and western fans, or they're drinking buddies, or they're rich, or they belong to a cult, or they're homeless, or they have tattoos, or they dress immodestly, or they're too loud, or they're gay, or they're gluten-free, or they put ketchup on their fries. We don't want anything to do with people like that. They're not like us. So we don't really see them as individuals. We see them as part of this group that we have rejected. Our vision is blurred with suspicion. Because whenever you label people, you can't really see them. Because who you are determines what you see. And that determines how you'll react. The priest and the Levite were considered good people. To paraphrase Mark Twain, they were good people in the worst sense of the word. And their reaction revealed some deep flaws in their faith. There were too many cultural filters that distorted their vision that allowed them to turn off their humanity and compassion and simply continue on with their lives without interruption. Ain't nobody got time for this. Not my problem. Because that's what this was, a very inconvenient interruption. This took all kinds of time to treat the wounds, to bandage them, the Samaritan was probably tired of traveling, drained by the heat. But he denied himself and put this patient on his own donkey, which meant he would have to walk. And it was costly. He gave the innkeeper two silver coins and said, if you have any extra expense, I will reimburse you when I return. Compassion always costs, and it's usually a lot more than we expected to pay. And there was no income tax receipt. The priest and the Levite had avoided all that extra trouble. Let someone else do it. So Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? You know, when we ignore these kinds of interruptions, it somehow diminishes our humanity in ways that harm our soul. Now, of course, our mind will forget it ever happened. We'll forget all about it. And our heart will go on, but our soul will become desensitized. So that the next time, we'll be even more callous, more cowardly, and more cold-blooded. It's possible the priest and the Levite had done something like this before, just ignored the needs of others when it didn't fit into their schedule and when there wasn't an audience to perform for. They had a habit of turning away, pretending they didn't see. So how was your trip? Did you see anything unusual? No, same old. Who you are will determine what you see. Which of these three men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Who you are determines what you see. For example, the pure in heart are blessed because they will see God. 
in the most unlikely places, in the most unusual faces. Because as Jesus said, for whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Matthew 25, 35. I had an experience like that recently. I've decided I need to change my attitude toward the homeless, especially these guys that are walking up and down the boulevard when you're stopped at a red light. I decided to do something about that. I didn't... I love Cliff Bars. They're like a meal in a packet. That's my lunch on some days. So I, I, I just... Open the window and give them a cliff bar. It's no big deal. Not a big deal at all. One of the guys I gave one to, he looked at it and said, I don't think I can eat this. I don't have any teeth. And he opened his mouth, and sure enough, he had absolutely no teeth. And I said, that's no problem. This is not like a granola bar where you have to bite it. You know, you just break off a piece. It sort of melts in your mouth. You'll be good. But the most recent one really got to me. There was a person standing on the boulevard with long hair, couldn't see the face, and I'm, I'm waiting for the light to change, and it's not changing, and it's coming closer, and the, when's that light going to change? No, it's coming closer. And finally there she, he was, or he, she was, or whatever, and so I open the window and hold out the cliff bar, and these hands reach for it, and then I see the face. It's not a guy, it's a girl, a young girl. And the eyes were absolutely piercing. I'd never seen a face quite like that. And as soon as I saw those eyes, it's like the Holy Spirit said, whatever you do to the least of these, you did for me. If you give a cup of cold water, if you give a cliff bar, it was such a minor thing that I did. Nothing spectacular, so little. But somehow, in God's eyes, it could have had great value. Because that's what he looks for. And somehow, I think it affected my humanity. Because I keep turning it off. I keep turning down my compassion when I don't want to deal with someone or something. But I've got to turn it up. I've got I've to go in the opposite direction. That's why I love Ray's thing on, around Christmas when we go down and give the homeless these bags filled with all kinds of stuff. I wish we could do that more often. I come away from that just feeling like, yeah, that was what God wanted us to do. That's what we need to be doing. Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Notice it doesn't say whatever you felt. It's what you did, what you actually did. You know, that may be one of the most powerful testimonies that we have in this terminal generation. Because the world does not need to see more Christians complaining and protesting and pushing and shoving and shouting. The world needs to see believers who care enough to bandage the wounds of those they have absolutely nothing in common with. Showing compassion for people that they despise. For people maybe who have deeply hurt them. On the news this week, there was this uh, courtroom drama where this police officer had gone into what she thought was her apartment, saw an intruder and killed him, a black man. And it turned out it wasn't her apartment. It was his. And she was in the courtroom on trial and the brother of this man gave a testimony and he came down 
And he went over to her and he gave her a big hug and said he forgave her. When has that ever happened in court? That's what the world needs to see. People like that. Matthew 5.16, Jesus said, You, you, you who are here this morning, you are the light of the world. So let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now the challenge sometimes is identifying who the victims are. Because not all of them look homeless or are bleeding. In this decadent culture, it's not easy to identify the victim because much of the bleeding is internal. And we won't notice that unless God opens our eyes and unless we open our hearts and, and ask people, are you okay? Do you need help? Can I, can I pray for you? And once our eyes are opened, we have to start responding. Now, of course, we can't solve everyone's problems. Like the Samaritan, we may only have one donkey. So we can't help everyone, but we can help the next one who we encounter along the way. Because who you are will determine what you see. And because you are someone who loves God, you are someone who loves God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's why you will also love your neighbor as yourself. That is totally within you. All we need to do is work out what God has already worked in. You are that kind of a person. We see people differently. We don't ignore people just because they can't do anything for us, because they can't further our career or increase our social standing. In, in high school, you know, you don't avoid the dorks because you want to be one of the cool kids. You look for the ones who are left out, the ones who are estranged, who are on the fringes. And those are the ones who are your neighbor. And that's what it means to be looking good. Looking for good things to do. And when we look good, we can do some good. Because this week, you will have opportunities to bandage someone else's wounds. There's going to be at least one person who needs you to be their neighbor. Someone who has been bullied at school, maybe. So go and do likewise. Verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, it's easy to say, I love God. But where's the proof? Well, I get this warm feeling when I'm worshiping. That must mean I love God. Well, that's important, but... That's really not quite enough. The proof of whether you love God or not is spelled out in 1 John chapter 4, 19 to 20, where it says, 
We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And as Jesus said, must also love his enemy. That's how we can prove that we actually love God and that that love has totally changed us. That's the only convincing proof of our love of God is how we treat other people and not the people who are just like us. How do we treat the people who are hard to love? Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? That's easy. Anyone can love those who are like them. Members of the mafia and the hell's angels are very affectionate to their own kind. But if that's all, what are you doing more than others? Anyone can do that. But here's the proof. Here's the proof. Love those who need your help. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Your enemy is your neighbor. Do you love God? The proof is how you treat your enemies. How you treat those who despise evangelicals. The easiest thing is to avoid them. But what if they're broken and bleeding? Well, they don't look broken. Well, maybe you have to look a little closer. There are victims all around us. And this flows right into the communion table this morning because Jesus was the ultimate victim. And when people looked at him, they saw someone who was cursed by God. Isaiah says he was despised, he was rejected. He was stricken, he was smitten, he was afflicted, he was pierced, he was crushed, he was punished, he was wounded, he was oppressed, he was slaughtered. People looked at him and turned away. Many in this world reject him as unworthy. How can he be my savior when he can't even save himself? But for some reason, when we looked at him, we decided to surrender our lives to him and worship him forever because we discerned that he had suffered for us. He was punished for us, for our salvation and forgiveness. And how did we know that? Because who you are determines what you see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are a God who loves the victim because we were victims at one point. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were hopeless. We were incurable. And yet you found a way 
to reach us, to treat our wounds, to bandage them, to stop the bleeding. It was Jesus who did the bleeding for us. We don't have to bleed anymore. Jesus bled for us. And by his blood, we are healed. And so we come to this table in that acknowledgement and realize that this is where new life begins through the acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the one who is broken and bleeding on the cross for us. We are not ashamed of him. We will never be ashamed of him. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. All praise to Jesus Christ, our God. Amen.